any true piece of art is just capturing a little bit of the human condition or expressing it and that's they're the songs that people really relate to and connect to most because that's what that's what you want as a listener yeah. or a viewer like something that expresses a part of yourself you know and because of Pro Tools nothing is ever wrong in a record like you know it, like if you listen to a Jimi yeah. Hendrix guitar solo there's sometimes there's a bum note or a fluff and I wouldn't get yeah. through the net these days you know but like those little aberrations are real and it's part of the human spirit like that's Ross Breen this week I'm from the Maker to the Made podcast listening to from the maker to the maid podcast hey everybody you're very welcome back another week another podcast my name is barry power i'm a musician songwriter want to be creator of things thanks to everybody who's been commenting liking subscribing from the maker to the maid is my weekly podcast where i sit down with artists and creatives to talk about their personal process and explore what it means to them to be a working creative in the modern digital world. This week on the show is singer-songwriter Ross Breen. A native of Kildare, Ross has been making music and performing on stages like Electric Picnic and Body and Soul, and has shared those stages with luminaries such as Bell X One, Midlake, Sinead O'Connor, Glenn Hansard. Over the course of his two albums, 2011's self-produced when I Met the Devil and 2016's Newborn Vibrancy, Ross displays a natural gift to weave a lyrical style with classic songwriting, hopping around genres with ease. He has just sold out three nights in T-Lane Church in the run-up to Christmas. These gigs, as you'll hear in the episode, were organised and promoted by Ross himself, further demonstrating his skill and embrace of being a truly independent musician. In the episode, we talked... A new wave of technical musicians embracing the internet, finishing your work, recycling your old releases. We talk flow states, greatest hits gigs, phones at gigs, Christmas albums, getting into the spirit of recording Christmas music in the summer, the empowerment of social media. This episode has everything. Links to Ross's music and all his socials are in the show notes. Barry Power Music, come along, sign up for my mailing list and get my ebook. If you'd like to show a little bit of support to the making of this podcast, go visit Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Barry Power. Um, you'll find it there. If you'd like to be a guest or you know somebody who might be interested in coming in and talking about their experience as a creative maker of things, then send me on an email from the maker to the maid at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you've been enjoying the podcast or you think you know somebody who might, share it around, comment, like, subscribe, maybe even consider leaving a positive review on iTunes really helps with the visibility of the podcast and also i will give you a shout out as usual all links are in the show notes thanks again for listening enjoy the conversation with ross breen see you next week so ross breen you're very welcome to the podcast how are you doing man i'm good i'm good i'd like to start off with your background yeah yeah like what so from the very start yeah from from birth <laughs> yeah uh, i know um more like how you how you kind of came to being creative with music kind of just in my background I suppose um, my family our musical family uh, so plenty of trad Irish sessions growing up my dad's a traditional Irish musician still has a gig in Dunboyne we've been playing there for 40 years uh, every Thursday night yeah in uh, Brady so like the, um, just whenever there's a party in the house or a wedding or a funeral, or any kind of social affair that my family are at, banjos, fat oak stones, um, guitars are out, people singing, so it's kind of just always been in the background. Yeah, so I suppose it would have been one of the kids playing the spoons at the start, you know, yeah. if you've ever seen that, or, you know, a little bit of the Kerry poke on a tin whistle, or that's how you get into it. And then, um, you know, when I get to like 10, 11 years of age, you start getting to Oasis and Nirvana and, Ask yeah. for an electric guitar for Christmas and things turn a little bit. Was from it that very point. forthcoming having a, an electric guitar in in a kind of a traditional? I know, like they're very encouraging. Always, like uh, I try to be the same with my kids now. 
not uh, overbearing you know but like encourage the interest no matter what it is if it's creative so um yeah there's always been access to musical instruments and lessons and stuff yeah in my uh, and was it easy to kind of jump into songwriting then from from that i i actually wrote poems from when i was very young little boy i was like english classes primary school and secondary school i was like reading so um songwriting i i got into it like straight away when i got my first guitar you know started writing songs straight away yeah very good ones obviously you know (laughs) you hope they get better over time i'm still not sure but uh like i remember giving my my granddad poems when i was like seven or eight and they'd be kind of humorous poems and he'd be laughing at them and encouraging me to write more and telling me to bring them more like yeah so uh yeah just like i'm saying you know from when i was a kid just had the right environment for being creative and encouragement you know and uh, not overbearing not like uh putting too much pressure on a kid like just yeah kids be kids and do what they want you know and did you like did you have any formal lessons then or was it all kind of like an instinctive kind of upbringing? Uh, i'd say i'm mostly self-taught um yeah i can't really read music uh i ha- i mean i went to my only ed- formal education is uh bally farm at rock school for oh yeah i years. was there yeah when were you there um 2002 or three i'm not too okay, i'm not yeah. too sure i finished in 2001 so not too long after me would you be fake's year uh i was the year um before fake all right i'm on the year after him all right, yeah. all right so i'm showing my age now <laughs> yeah we all are don't worry about it <laughs> and i like the way we use fake as a focal point for when you've been in bali firm as well this should be the new standard maybe but this is how yeah. i know like yeah this is how i'm getting to meet meet people meet guests now yeah yeah so, once you do one of these i suppose you know whole yeah. world opens up yeah this is it uh, well one of the running themes so far when i've been chatting to people is the difference between like a formal education in music and a kind of an instinctual process do you know what i mean so it's like in some ways that kind of formal training can maybe hold you back from being kind of you know writing from a kind of a more instinctive place yeah um it's a it's a common theory that's posited but i remember uh you you might know Hugh Buckley, the oh, teacher yeah. from yeah, yeah. uh from amazing jazz guitarist. His brother is Richie Buckley, famous saxophonist. But I I remember being in college and and uh, bringing up that exact point with him, you know, and he wasn't having it at all because he loves his theory. But he's like, you know, he just gave me that perspective, you know, knowledge will never hurt, and being armed with knowledge and learning and actually knowing what what you're doing it actually opens up uh, a world of possibilities to you yeah, yeah, yeah. it'll actually make you more creative that there's arguments like for uh, for and against i love watching a folk artist who has three chords and just uh just has the spirit of music in them mm-hmm. and um you know just just has a just has something to say or just has some creativity in there that they want to get out. But I also love watching high-end jazz musicians as well who are operating on a different plane altogether and will come up with concoctions of notes that like are yeah, like yeah, mathematical yeah. formulas, you know. I was got stuck in a YouTube vortex, as is a musician's want the other yes, day. Yes, yeah, yeah. Watching um, Snarky Puppy and Jacob Collier and mm-hmm. like I'm big into Wolfpack as well. Yeah. Which is all um, you know, I guess some of it might just sound like noodling to the average ear, but it's unbelievable when you try and deconstruct it or hear them talk. Yeah, about and their I think art. I think, you know, YouTube is is so it's a really inspiring place because you have access to these kind of sideline musicians that you wouldn't necessarily hear about. It'd be very difficult to come across a band like Snarky Puppy without without the internet that's true you know? and and these bands really uh are very savvy at using social media and uh i'm trying to get the hang of it 
myself to yeah. put on my gigs. And like the first time I heard of Snarky Puppy, they sold out Sugar Club in Dublin and people oh, were raving gig? about yeah. it. And oh, so you're, you're familiar with the territory. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, and then they, you know, they just use that momentum and grow and grow. And like it's a. But they, they like they booked outfit. their whole European, their first European tour, they booked it all themselves and slept yeah. on people's couches. And yeah. Do you know? Um, they had a post up recently where they played at the Royal Albert Hall and said compared to their first tour around it was so DIY the first time they yeah. did it and they were selling their own merch and all that yeah. kind of stuff it was it's fantastic what you what could, I'd say they're still selling do. their own merch though it's a big big thing for a band that's why it's especially yes. need to be doing yeah. it you know true but um, just to kind of bring it back to, to your own songwriting process then what does we, it look we like nearly, now? We really turned into the Snarky Puppy podcast there. The Snarky Puppy yeah. podcast, yeah. Which isn't a bad name, in fairness. Go on, <laughs> sorry, I interrupted. You're grand. Um, yeah, your process now, is it, is it, do you have a process? Do you have a, a strict have a, way of working? Or is it kind of... I should. I mean, I keep out? putting notes on my phone to try and establish like a workflow, uh, a song a week even, or something like that. But I, I've always had like songs on my phone songs in my like dozens and dozens of notebooks that I have and my laptop has various drafts of various songs so I'm not like a person who picks one song and goes okay right I'm gonna do this today and I'm gonna get yeah, to the yeah. end of this song today and then that'll be a box ticked and then next week I'll work on another song but that might be more productive um I, I don't know uh yeah maybe I need to streamline that and improve that part of my life as life gets busier so you know yeah that's very similar to how i i have things as well i have yeah. like a lot of unfinished things and I, i'm really curious about how how people are are at finishing things because for me i, I really struggle with going right there's there's the end the start is really easy i can usually yeah have like a good few ideas but getting it to the final product and product getting it to the final kind of result is i find really hard that is, I think, uh, I was only uh, in a, just came from a coffee shop talking to a couple of mates of mine about this exact um, phenomenon with artists. Yeah. And we were talking about another artist who was successful and had a bit of success with a, an album, but it's taking forever to get the next one over the line. And I've, I've got a project album. that's going on for four or five years. I put out half of it. It's a Christmas album. And I meant to have it done last year, meant to have it done this year. Yeah. Uh, just like Christmas small rolls increments. around again. Yeah, exactly. And it's too late because if you want to release something, you need uh, eight, eight to 12 week roll up if you're, well, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not in this day and age. But if you're in like an artist trying to make some kind of publicity splash, you need some mm -hmm. kind of momentum. Beyonce or Kanye can just drop an album out of nowhere and the world goes mad. But everybody yeah. else needs some kind of like strict plan to really promote it because, you know, another thing that happens all the time, musicians, they put all that work into making their album or their EP or whatever it is. And then when it gets to promoting it, nobody's trained them up for that or like they're kind of done in a way with the music and there's no one to take the yeah. project well, there, there's a lot of shifting sands now with, yeah. with how do you put out something how do you yeah. how do you look at it um still thinking about it but on a, a problem of mine that i think about stuff too much i should be just i think in 2020 i want to just be more laissez-faire with releases and think nothing of say if i like really like a song which a, a mate of mine who i work with a lot of times sent a song that I had demoed and he demoed it more and emailed it to me and I'm really into it and I'm just thinking like I might just put that out as a single a yeah. standalone single on Spotify no physical product or anything service to radio stations promoting my social medias and it's just about building your profile and letting people know you're still alive do you think that's like a, a positive thing that all those kind of like if you had said maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you're going to have all these areas that like you can write, record, produce, release and have all the facilities to all these things. Do you know, do you think that's a real benefit now or do you find it as a like you kind of would you pine more for the for the older days of like an album comes out and it has like a, a life 
and then you know you release the cd and it has like a two-year lifespan and on you go to the next project yeah lifespan is totally different now an album has a week shelf life really uh, i heard somebody say that at a seminar like i think he worked for pitchfork uh the big american yeah uh, blog and uh that's basically how much time you have even if you're a major artist you might get two weeks but then the album's not fresh anymore and there's 10 albums out the Behind next week it. you know yeah. um my thinking at the moment is i think it's easier to recycle material like i you know, I, I put an album out maybe a year ago, but I didn't, like I was saying there, put my weight behind it and my time into promoting it like you should do. You should put the same amount of time promoting it as you do into writing and recording it because mm-hmm. if you feel the work deserves to be out, then that's what you should do. It's very, it's very hard to do that, especially if you've spent so much already. Energy, money, time, yeah, time yeah. all that. But I feel like you can recycle stuff in your timeline and you see people doing it like uh just bring the single out again or you know share the video again and or uh think of an angle for it and you can give your song new life or say approach people in music supervision and try and get a place somewhere and then you often see a song that's three years old yeah like, yeah it's, it's, it's only old to you anyway yeah so it won't be old there are plenty to... of ears that haven't heard of it that, yeah. and to whom it's brand new, you know, so um, pluses and minuses. But like, what are you going to do? We can't go back in a time machine to the 60s and that, That's, even if we wanted to. Yeah, I think a lot of artists, though, do kind of think back to that time and go, it's somewhere in the back of their mind. It's like, well, it'll come round again, yeah. you know, and uh, not learning kind of to see the landscape of where they are, I suppose. Um, like... I just booked gigs here in Salvatore are now and uh, put them up on Facebook and didn't do any promo. Um, And I found it very empowering. Uh, Just sold out three nights. and Did you sell out the third night? That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I'm thinking thinking about a fortnight as well and just doing a run. But like I wouldn't have been able to do that 10 years ago even. You know, it's just... um, once you get the, I feel like social media is like an instrument, you know, you have to learn how to play it and any aspect of your life or say if you're in music, you have to learn all the different aspects. And yeah, yeah. me personally, the, the one I'm most intensely absorbed in is songwriting and creating. But, you know, if you neglect all those other aspects, then you can't really bring yourself on to the next step. So I think it's a really good point, though, to see it like that. I think to see... To see the creativity in all these other areas, and there's definitely tons of it. I think you just have to be open-minded enough to see it that way, rather than this is a force I have to fight against every time I put something out. You know, mm-hmm. now I have to promote it, and now I have to market it, and all those things that don't yeah. sit well. I'm the same. With I used artists. to just uh, dread it basically, and uh, you know, it just felt like an awful heavy load to try and. Uh, sell yourself but yeah. there's no option like the, the the only other option is to not sell yourself and nobody hears the work that you've worked hard on and people do want to hear it you know yeah i think so and i think you know when you, automatically when you say sell sell yourself i think you're you're kind of you put that negative spin in your head yeah. like i i kind of tend to see it now as if you were say you're really into uh game of thrones or something Okay. And you're going to sit and you're going to have a conversation with somebody and you're going to tell them how great you think Game of Thrones is. And that really is kind of you selling the idea of what it means to you. And if you can find your way into your, you know, talking about your own music and what you do in that way, it's less about selling and more about just talking about the good things that you like about it. Piquing someone's interest. Uh, yeah. yeah. But having yeah, a genuine a enthusiasm yourself, you know, I think... I think once you go, oh, now I have to sell it, it kind of, it puts this weird kind of spin on it. I You're think. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's about having a healthy mindset to it. And then it doesn't seem so hard, you know, or it doesn't have to be such a big deal or. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it doesn't influence the way you write though, does it? No, but I mean, 
No, I, I usually try to write for myself. I have done collaborations where you're maybe trying to pitch at somebody or write for someone and then it's different. It's more like, um, say, a carpenter making a table or a chair or something. You know how it's done or what it's supposed to look like at the end. Yeah. But with <clears throat> my work, the, the work that really uh, gets my synapses firing, like I, I, I just try to be instinctive with it and uh, uh, end up with something that feels uh, natural or not contrived. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm interested in uh, flow and the concept of flow and the state of flow and trying to enter into that, but getting time to get there or yeah. making time for yourself <laughs> to get there uh, can be difficult. But um, with me, I'm definitely a late night brain yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, can cause issues in pragmatically in life or responsibilities and having a routine and getting up early and, and getting your sleep as well. Yes. Oftentimes if I'm writing a song or getting to the end of a demo, I'm up till four and five in the morning easily, just mm-hmm. over and over again, doing a vocal or ironing out lyrics or just listening. Yeah. If I write a song, I just listen to it like a hundred times easily, you know. There is something about that time of day, and as it's been mentioned before, actually, by a few people, it's just there's something, you know, there's no other distractions going on, and for some reason, music just sounds better at nighttime mm-hmm. anyway, I think. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, and there's actually a, I, I heard a podcast episode, uh, Guy Raz, do you know him, NPR, oh, American yes. yeah, podcast, yeah. what's his podcast called again, you'll have to edit that in. If I think of it, but the podcast is called 4 a.m. and it's about the amount of okay, yeah. I think I saw a TED Talk on, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. It's TED Talks, TED Talks podcast, that's what it is. Um, so it's in songs, it's in films, it's in uh novels, and uh, yeah, it's gas. He it starts at hit with him setting his alarm to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and go yeah. in the street and start walking around. And he's on the phone, okay, I'm up at four o'clock in the morning. Do you ever morning. try that? Do you ever try flipping it around and getting up early rather than staying up late? I have a mate who told me that he does that. He has uh three kids and a full time job, but he's a great musician as well. Actually, I recommend you him for your podcast. He's a good, good talker as well. But uh, he was telling me before the kids get up and before his wife gets up and before he goes to work, he gets up at 6 or 6.30 in the morning and sits down. I think he might have said a typewriter, but uh, yeah, that's, in my case, it'd be a laptop or maybe a notepad and just writes stream of consciousness, Yeah, writes anything. It doesn't have to be a song. It doesn't have to be like uh, a poem or a story, just whatever is coming to mind and get that... Uh, creative outlet first thing in the morning first thing you Just do that day out. yeah yeah uh and it really made a lot of sense to me because morning times can be just just a mind melt and stressful but and when that happens and you do kind of tend to it in the morning like no matter what happens for the rest of the day you have that little bit done yeah you have it's something that there. wasn't there before and that belongs only to you and i think there's a lot of value in that it, in in a way it's the same as getting up and meditating and I find mm-hmm. you know writing or that state of flow that like uh, deep state of consciousness or concentration yeah. that's different to your normal everyday brain that's the that's the value in it I think you know that's where the good stuff lives yeah 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 you're I don't know it puts you in a better place you know and do you have any um do you have any kind of techniques to get you there or is there anything that you do like light some incense or you know go for it well Alton Collin was on before and he said like walking was was brilliant for that Mm. he said to get himself into that kind of headspace was Uh, do you mean for writing he goes for a walk and then he writes a song yeah he'll go for a walk and usually like he's his kind of idea was like the less forced that I can make it the easier it's going to be to come out with something so if I sit there and go right I have to write um, but when you mentioned flow, is like, do you have anything that gets you into that state of flow easier? See, this is what I'm saying. Maybe I need to address that in my life and find the the time. Find the time. That'd be, you know, yeah. magic key to find the time to uh, sit down and relax and do that. But generally, I'll just sit. At, if I have a few minutes, I'll sit at the piano and start playing. 
Yeah. And I guess that's it. It's just start playing and not play anything in particular. And then uh, some words or some kind of melody might come in. Uh, so it's just sitting down to do it. But I, I have like, I, I do a lot of running, uh, which I've just taken up in the last, I guess, year or two. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, that, that releases a lot of tension. Uh, and it's cathartic in the same in a different way that that writing is so i don't know I, i'm everything is a balancing act i'm not sure if it's helping one is helping the other but it's definitely uh helped with um being in a better place mentally yeah and if you're there then when you go to create you're not feeling uptight or you're not feeling too much tension and yeah i think uh, ulton's point about feeling relaxed and the less tension you have and the less um, expectations you have on yourself, the better. Yeah. And that's obviously a better um, environment for trying to create something, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's it's a weird one because, you know, not only are you trying to find the time to do it, but you're trying to find the headspace within that time to do it, you know? So it's it's yeah. kind of like a double, double difficulty, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but aside from time, is there anything else that you find might hold you back from being create, creative? Do you, like, do you ever suffer a writer's block or anything like that? Uh, I've answered yes to this question before, but I don't actually think I do. I think I always have several songs in progress. Um, but they're probably in progress for too long and I let distractions in life get in the way of getting them finished. Yeah. Having said that, I've hundreds of songs, so I don't know how many I'm supposed to have or want to have. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's no number. Um, I don't suffer from writer's block, really. I don't think so. I suffer from, like, uh, maybe beating myself up too much if so, like uh, if something isn't successful, but that's everybody in every yeah. industry, you know? So um, I think uh, just trying to be healthy in your outlook and your activities and doing the things that you, you get value from in your everyday life helps helps you with that you know puts you in a better positive place yeah so are you good at deciding are you good at drawing a line over the things that are finished then or no not at all like <laughs> uh this christmas album that i've mentioned have i you oh, did yeah yeah um like I, I put out 20 minutes of it and it was sort of like a precursor to a second part. Then I took it down off Spotify and so you can't really get it online anymore. I sold uh, like 100 CDs of it at the time right. and then that's it. So this is stuff. like a concept album, is that? Yeah, definitely. There's original songs in it and there's um, I'm constantly looking for specifically blues and gospel music and a different uh, slant on Christmas songs, but I also love the hymns as well. So I'm just doing my own versions and trying to have a, a thread running through. Oh, that's really I, cool. I just like, I like, I, I consider Christmas music a genre unto itself, even though yeah. every artist from uh, like every genre in the, in the, like you have rock and prog rock and jazz and uh, classical and like the popular songs are from all these um different areas but the actual uh, parameters of a christmas song or christmas sounding record that's the genre that's what everybody's trying to aim for you know and um i like when it's done well and i want to do it myself and i have a vision for it but the vision has become bigger over time so when i'm saying i released the record and then pulled it back it's because i've started working on some of those songs again and uh, reevaluating them and adding stuff. That's to really them. cool. So it's kind of like this living thing that, you know. Yeah, a living thing is a good way of putting it because uh, I think it was Bob Dylan said like the song. He's he's never finished with a song, and you see that if you go see him live, he might do something. else. The lyrics are different. Like like the yeah. verses can change radically from the recorded version because he just feels like changing it, and that I feel the same way. A song is a living breathing entity and it's malleable and changeable over time and who's to say you can't do that like who's to say you can't put out a single and then keep changing yeah the well that marries very well with the kind of the, the way music is i suppose for lack of a better word consumed now 
Do you know, you can, you can put it up and you can take it down and you can change it and put a different version on it. And but doesn't it make sense if a song is part of you, um, you put that song out at age 21 and then you sing it at age 31, you've become a different person in those 10 years and then you might want to sing the lyrics slightly differently or play it slightly differently and it sort of, if it's part of you, you can develop it along with yourself. But what, what about, I suppose, just looking at from an audience point of view, you know when a song leaves you and it, somebody else has picked it up and they yeah. and it's kind of theirs as well. Yeah. And then you come along and you go, well, I've changed all the lyrics and I've maybe I've changed it around. Do you think? Do you ever I, think I didn't that? say all the lyrics. But, <laughs> but, you, but I mean, you know what yeah, I mean. I, think I mean that's that's the most um, that that's the the most dramatic end point. Uh, but like I like seeing an artist play with their own material and do a different version I don't really like going to a gig and they do the do it the exact same way as on yeah. the CD you often hear that as a compliment it was brilliant it sounded exactly the same as the <laughs> CD I don't like that you know um, and I don't want to go too Bob Dylan heavy in a in a podcast find the right mix it's a, it's a subject that's been well covered in songwriting but like was at his gig during the summer and a mate of mine came to the gig and uh, we were chatting about it afterwards. And I was like, I loved it. I love all his gigs, you know. I don't really mind what he does. Yeah. And my mate was saying, I was actually angry at him. I was angry because he, he, he always does different versions of every song. Like, and sometimes they're unrecognisable, you know, and you're having to guess. And you're like three verses in when you realise <laughs> what song he's actually doing. But I don't know. Like, I, I like to be surprised, you know. I like a journey, you know. I think he, he uh, like Bob Dylan particularly, he's, you know, he, he's always going to do that. Yeah. He won't be like, I did the greatest hitch show and then one of them, I just threw in all these weird versions and that happened yeah. to be the one you were at. I think he's very consistent about. Yeah, you know, you know what you're getting. Although yeah. people keep buying tickets and then complaining about the same thing. Like, it's like, have you never talked to anyone who's been to a Dylan gig or yeah. read a review? Like, this is just his modus operandi. Yeah, I found out people give out an awful lot more about gigs in general. And, uh, even the attitude at attending a gig now is weird. I went to right. see Stevie Wonder and, yeah. you know, I, I suppose it just, I kind of had a break from going to a lot of gigs when I had kids and stuff. And I was, I, I had it in my head what going to a gig was like. And then I came back and everyone just has their phone out now. And it's like, yeah, it does ruin it. But it, some, some but, gigs but then have... they just gave out about everything. They talked through all the songs and then gave out about. That sounds terrible. And That's I was a... like, well, what? there was a few sound issues and, he took quite a few breaks, but it is put down to, you know, he's 70, Health, yeah. you know, he's like. There's no way it was bad. There's no way it was a bad game. No, There's wasn't. no way Stevie Wonder's playing badly. But people <laughs> came out and they just took to Twitter then and just gave a stink about it. And I was like, well, you didn't make an effort to uh, actually show up. Do you, you think just you might gave out. overemphasize the general attitude or consensus from reading a few tweets from from moaners like how many people were at the gig who actually liked it and just went home and probably didn't tweet about it, yeah. it. or True. maybe had the exact same feelings about you it was like ah it would have been good if there wasn't so many Muppets moaning and talking that's a good point that is a good point I think uh, I think the Twitter warriors are actually um, in a minimum society but uh, have an overbearing influence in people's thoughts you know yeah yeah but I found that, and I went to see Massive Attack as well, and the same kind of thing. Not that, not that the, the Twitter arena. I meant to go to that gig, actually. Um, yeah, it was great. Too many phones. I, I loved it, and just too many phone. It was like I'm going to watch this on a tiny screen, and record video of it that I'm never going to watch again, or I'm going to post it that I was there. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to say. I was, yeah, yeah. I was Artists there. are banning phones at gigs at the moment. That happens as well. Yeah, it, especially it, it, comedy. It, it gigs. would be nicer though, wouldn't it, if if people just. You know, thought about it in the same way as going to the cinema or something. Yeah. You know, uh, who, like you just I can't remember who it was. I've heard it a few times where people have to put their phone in a Ziploc bag and check it in. Chris uh, Rock, I think. Yeah. Was it Chris Rock? And Ariana Grande might have done something similar. And uh, then you get it back after the gig. And um, it's great. Um, I, find, uh, I find it varies from gig to gig, depending on the artist. Sometimes there's way too many phones out. And sometimes people are just in the moment which is obviously much better you know yeah that's true um, and I have thinking about I don't know if I, I'd be one of those 
strict artist who implements a band but these gigs that I have coming up they're going to be fairly well, they're very intimate, intimate yeah. you know and uh, very um, immediate like it's a very small place so too many phones going on will will uh, detract from it you know yeah it's a strange one it's strange times you know um, it's, up to, it's up to individuals and people are generally very amenable if you just say it at the start or you even say it in the event description or everybody knows the score going in the door it's not really a mobile phone thing then it'll be respected yeah. or if if I have someone filming and I'll just say that like you don't need to have your phone out you know it's going to be filmed and so it's going to be better. filmed and recorded um, we might I haven't sorted the filming properly yet but definitely one night it'll be recorded professionally with a view to maybe using them those recordings and releasing them cool mm. and are you going to have some of the Christmas album material in there yeah yeah I'll, well any original songs that I've written it's all going to be Christmas music pretty much 100% of the show Class. unless I take a notion on the evening and decide just to do a song that I like to uh, change, so, the, um, change the verses of yeah, Christmas classics yeah dry people mad yeah. <laughs> I don't That'd remember this verse you yeah. know I actually came up with a you know that song um, The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot have you ever heard that song no my t- my dad makes me laugh because his, his mom used to sing it to him just to make him cry for a laugh this sounds like childhood child cruelty <laughs> The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot and he wandered home to all last year's broken toys is the the line in the song he's sitting on a curb and Santa Claus hasn't come to him you know it's actually yeah. a devastating <laughs> So, like, is there a happy ending to it? No, no, no. So that was my point. Oh my God. I was going to put like, I had an idea to put like an actor's voice coming in over the end of the song and then like give it the Disney ending and yeah. like take the melody and it would be me singing. I've happy never ending. heard about that song. What? I'll look it up. It's uh, like Nat King Cole does it. I think that's the most famous version. Yeah. And uh, there's something about 40s and 50s music where you're coming out of depression era yeah there's a a lot more uh i know we still have poverty but like there's a lot more uh breadline poverty around then especially where artists come from um and they don't they pull no punches with with those songs like you know but that's it like i mean i suppose you're right i never thought about it that way but christmas music in general does have the best ones have this kind of real melancholy right. as much as it's there's kind of like this heartwarming disneyified yeah thing on one side and then this melancholic it's also people the, still want such a sad they still want real like they still want songs to like reflect their own lives so um they they want proper real life details and imagery you know people love fairy tale of new york because it doesn't really sound like a christmas song it has gritty details in it and yeah that resonates with people because it's closer to real life than a than a christmas card is so you know? when you recorded that album was it you know or what you have of the album was it was it at christmas time that you recorded it or do you uh, get in like a christmasy yes yeah, yeah. In, in um, <laughs> i i have found with it the music sounds better in December <laughs> when the weather is cold and dark. Yeah, it'd have to be like... But, sorry, I moved your radiator. You're, right. you're going to have that noise on the record. But like, I have had people give me strange looks because I get in my car and it's July and I'm listening to Christmas albums. <laughs> it's just a little... The kids would be delighted though. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't have any um, preconceptions about that kind of stuff. They just enjoy music. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really care. Like, people... The context seems to be important to people like you know like you have someone going what are you doing to me like playing like christmas songs in in the summer my yeah. brain can't handle this but yeah. i'm just like immersed in the musical aspect of it like uh, uh, i was i always ideas. thought like the, uh, an engineer working in a, in a studio when people are making christmas albums that's true it must be a strange experience yeah, because you're going in, in whatever it is march or april yeah yeah to just have it done for that year like my favorite one is Elvis's Christmas album and I just always picture him recording it in Hawaii or somewhere with a you know floral garland around yeah, his yeah, neck yeah. and a Hawaiian shirt and shorts and stuff and sipping cocktails <laughs> and it's the middle of summer and he's doing all these I don't know how it's actually done but that's how I imagine it being done you know and he's singing like the you know Oh Holy Night and stuff you know yeah that's really weird 
I, um, yeah, I never actually thought about how they do Christmas albums. Yeah. But it's really interesting. Well, they're not they're not all roasting chestnuts around an open fire like with uh, you know Christmas hats on like it's. Yeah. Not that in the I guess I kind of put Christmas out of my mind for until it rolls around again yeah. and then it, it's like well, oh it's here now yeah that's important to people but I guess when I'm doing that stuff it's more like an abstract concept to me like yeah something you can study and you know uh, you don't become too invested in it. I mean I invest in the music itself but like the concept itself is like something that I can view objectively so yeah. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. you know it doesn't bother me that way you know that's super cool. Yeah. That's mad. <laughs> mm. So anyway, uh, pivoting slowly to the left. Um, I wanted to tell you a story about oh, yeah. uh, the Fire same away. Bob Dylan gig. I don't want to, uh, but like there was a, there was an, a yin and a yang to that because funnily enough, Neil Young was on the bill and he's notorious. You'll have to just like chop this up and put it back into yeah, where we were yeah, doing yeah. the Bob Dylan story. He's notorious for just uh, going off on 20 minute guitar solos and playing stuff no one knows and yeah. uh, being totally like belligerently um, someone put up a good post about Neil Young today and he was like oh what was it he was saying that the music he writes sometimes the audience likes it and sometimes they don't and uh, you know I've never he just writes what he writes and he never writes it to sell or anything like that. Mm. And, uh, you know, occasionally audience, what the audience like and what I do come together and it's right. for like a brief moment and then it's kind of passing. And is that him talking? Yeah, That's, that would make uh, sense. Like, because uh, this gig he played was a stormer. Like uh, most of the stuff, the audience now knew most of the stuff and he did hits and it was like he was annoyed at being put on the bill below Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan like being on first <laughs> I'm gonna do all it was, yeah it was like teenagers like yeah. mindset I'm gonna you know blow the crowd away <laughs> and upstage just do like uh, and yeah the band are amazing like crowd went nuts for him and uh, I, I was at the which is now kind of an infamous gig in Vicker Street um, what was it it was called the Greendale Tour concept album okay. I love concept albums people yeah, yeah, people yeah. roll their eyes when they hear a concept album you know uh, and I got it as a Christmas present I think like family and friends had kind of done a whip around like the tickets were so is this like a recent no, enough no, album it's like 15 years ago or something okay, right. and uh, they were over 100 quid at the time because it's Vicar Street and, you know, and like he did a few songs that people knew um, but most of it was just his new album and he's telling stories about how it all ties together. And yeah. I, I was wrapped. I was loving it. Like I thought it was, it was a very theatrical little show that he put together and there was an intermission and all, as soon as he went off an intermission, all you could hear was grumbling all around. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my least favourite part of the gig was when he came out at the end for his encore and resignedly did like... Uh, Heart of Gold and whatever the crowd wanted to yeah. hear and the crowd could feel that often and uh, you know it's like yeah, a token gesture he came out and did a few songs we knew at the end kind of thing but, but like anyone I was there with uh, hated it and slated the gig and uh, like whenever we talk about it talk about it as, as, a, as if it was a negative experience but my thinking on that is they paid for it and I didn't you know, so they yes, part of yeah. hard earned cash and they wanted their bang for their book and they wanted all these songs that they knew done. They the wanted they the knew. dancing monkey. But I didn't have that uh mindset going in. I was just like open to the experience and I loved the theatrical experience and the stage show and the songs that he chose to play. Uh you know yeah. being the artist that he is. Same and thing with Tom Waits. Him. I saw Tom Waits a few years ago in Rat Cellar Park. Yeah. Yeah. And that was similar. Like, everyone was waiting for him to do all... Well, he doesn't have any hits. I'm a huge Waits fan, like, and I love those gigs. Like. Well, I think he, that, I suppose that era where, which, you know, we had, uh, now that I think, for Martha and Esm. Yeah, Martha. Yeah, Martha like, and that's... Two of those other ones. That's when he's very young, like, when he, in the 70s. Like, uh it's from from his first couple of albums um heart of saturday night and yeah, all still that kind is of kind of yeah. the songs you might hear most on the radio all 55 and stuff yeah they're kind of hits right or or they would definitely mean know. something to 
People the one are... the Eagles did and the one Bruce Springsteen did are Jersey Girl and Old 55 is the Eagles song, right? Downtown so, yeah. Train. Downtown Train is Rod Stewart. Okay, yeah. So he kind of does have hits. He has some hits. But you're right, yeah. he doesn't do those live. <laughs> I haven't seen him do them anyway. Um, uh, I love those gigs. Um, but then again, I'm nuts and I know every single song. No, so. I, think, I think you've got a point there. It's not really fair to kind of, to just kind of expect an artist to do what you want them to do. Or realistic because everybody has a different... Uh, expectation unless they actually go out and say look we're putting together a greatest hits tour and yeah we're going to do bang out all of our best or all of our best all of our um, all of our hit songs that which is know. a ticket i'd never buy if i see greatest hits tour i'm like not, not interested i guess that's just my I don't uh, know, part of being an artist that i want artists to like surprise me i like being like i went to radiohead with a mate of mine and his review after the gig amused me a lot because i thought it was brilliant yeah, which one, which one was this? The most recent one they did. In, in the, the three arena. In the three, oh yeah, I didn't get to that one. Um, and they did a great spread of their career. Uh, really good two-hour set, you know. Lighting was brilliant, stage show was great. Um, but he was like, you know, I would have preferred if it was horrendously bad. Because it was expectedly just the way you'd expect a Radiohead <laughs> gig to be. You know, nothing went wrong, like... I don't know. I think it's uh, a musician. He's a musician as well. Uh, England Asians like you. You enjoy a car crash performance in a way, like something really chaotic and unexpected. Yeah, there you seems know. to be uh, like I suppose the technology has caught up with with the performance. Like I mean, amps don't fail now, and lights don't yeah. really go wrong. And, and because of Pro Tools, nothing is ever wrong in a record. Like, you know, you, like if you listen to Jimi yeah. Hendrix guitar solo, there's sometimes there's a bum note or a fluff and I wouldn't get yeah. through the net these days, you know. But like those little aberrations are real and it's part of the human spirit. Like, yeah, my, my thinking on art is like any true piece of art is just capturing a little bit of the human condition or expressing it. And that's, they're the songs that people really relate to and connect to most because that's what, that's what you want as a listener yeah. or a viewer, like something that expresses a part of yourself, you know? So I, I, to me, that's what um, any artist is trying to get to. So if, if they're trying to achieve that in a live show rather than something that's polished, I'm, like, me personally, I'm not interested in, in seeing somebody do a polished show and represent the songs and they sound really like they do on the record. I want to like, see somebody putting themselves through the ringer a little bit and trying to get somewhere. You know? Yes. Trying to yeah. get, trying to attain a higher plane of consciousness as an artist and bring the audience there with you. That's what I think. Do you think artists, like, do you think many artists still do that? Is that a priority for artists now? Um, to me, it should be. And yeah. it's, they're the artists I uh, gravitate towards who are, um, who, who aren't afraid to be a bit more fluid uh, a bit looser in their show uh, just how they present themselves and just um, but it's a, it's up to every artist themselves you know yeah that's true but I found that as well when it, like going to I suppose the, the, the two gigs that I've gone to this year were, were both in the tree arena and it was Massive Attack and Stevie Wonder yeah. and like that they're nearly two everything's nearly too good now. yeah and it's like but i i think maybe i'm a big venue... stevie wonder fan and i have he's been here twice and i haven't bought tickets and i still would like to see him but i know just from my mates going to those gigs that that's what it is it's stevie wonder being really good at being stevie wonder and the band are amazing yes um, yeah, yeah but that's like like what you're saying there i know how polished is going to be I don't know. I'm being a bit of a begrudger there because I know if I went, I'd love it. But I think there's a large, like, I it's mean, there's kind of a large though. venue syndrome as well where you go yeah. and it's very, you know, the beer, you can have two types of beer and uh, everyone yeah. come, comes in at this time and curfew is strict and the lights yeah. will all be amazing and mm-hmm. then the curfew just cuts off and you go home. And so it's you like, want to be in some dingy basement with some, like, rough and raw and ready band playing there and maybe, the experience is more organ- organic than corporate. If there's a mix of, you know, like, at least when Happy the point medium. was the point that it kind of had personality that, you know, didn't sound great. But Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, 
People used to moan about the point. I liked it, you know. I didn't. It was just like a big old warehouse. What's wrong with that, though? Yeah. yeah well, I, I wasn't going on the sound in the point. I thought it was really bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I don't care about that, really. <laughs> People, but, but see, then, then here's like, it needs to be more raw. And it's like, but the sound wasn't good. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It, you know, so you, you, never you don't like the, the sterile corporate experience that is the three arena now, but you didn't like the bad sound and the point and how rough and ready it was. But yeah. you can't have you can't have a boat ways, Barry. Sorry, you're going to have to choose. That's true. Well, um, I, I suppose I'd go more rough and ready then. Well, speaking of like elite experiences, uh, um, I knew I had a contact who had uh, I don't know what the what their club is called like the members club there for the tickets in the three arena it's eighteen forty seven or something there's a bar upstairs okay there's like a so we got tickets for David Byrne who's my favorite live artist like my top four gigs in yeah. life I think are all David Byrne gigs and the le- the last tour was just sensational one of the best things I've ever seen but we were in that members bar before. And uh, after the gig, and um, they just have your points ready for you. Like you order, right. you put in an order at the bar, and then the gig's over, and you go back. <laughs> we had a little meal and a, and a few points beforehand, and then went to see the gig, and then you go back, and they're waiting for you, and you got comfy seats and everything. It's like uh, it's real living the high life plush yeah. stuff, you know. But uh, yeah, so. The, we so can nay say all we like about <laughs> how uh, Ireland is gone, but like when you when when you enjoy an experience like that, it's hard to deny. It's well, enjoyable. I suppose you know these these are the kind of upper echelon artists and doing. What, what do you think the uh, what do you think it's like for us kind of day to day artists trying to go out and get gigs and venues and all that? What's your take on me? Um, what it's like to be. Uh, an independent artist. Well, we're, we're coming back to what I was saying earlier about social media and feeling empowered by being able to just book a gig in a place that isn't a venue um, and put it online and people can just buy the tickets and it's all really easy to set up. Any artist can do this. Yeah. Anyone with a guitar can, like, I do a thing called Creed Live who <clears throat> Lisa Lockery played, who you've had on the podcast before. Um, another local songwriter called Amy Donegan has just started played it and I got Topso in who are from they're based in Kildare they used to be the Barley Mob right yeah <clears throat> and the capacity is 30 people basically so it was like maybe that's a tight 30. 40, <laughs> yeah. 40 people in this tiny tiny box like room space yeah but I just like I like being in there and I just took the notion it's like yeah, you can put a gig on here yeah, you can fit people in where there's a will, there's a way, and just bend it to your own will and put in a little system, and you know, then out of nowhere, this kind of night blossoms and it is absolutely brilliant. And we're going to do another one. Brilliant. And um, I I just think it's it's easy to put gigs on, and uh, you don't have to get yourself like because if I book Wheelands or something, which I think is three hundred capacity now. And if you're not signed, if you know manager, you know agent, you have to just rent the room yourself and then yeah. sell the tickets yourself. And then you're putting yourself under pressure to hit targets and everything. Um, so at, at the moment, my mind space is just achievable gigs, smaller capacity, rooms that I like playing, gigs that I know I can be good at um, and just get a, a nice vibe going, a nice buzz going and uh like the the modern world we're living in at the moment it, that's easy to do yeah i think you know so it's it's really the old adage life is what you make it like just uh set yourself an achievable goal like it's it's the sounds so simple when you put yeah, it like that yeah and when, you that, feel so much better with that know? extend as well to actually having a career as an independent artist do you think you can yeah because i find it like just you the think last that's month or so there to do it like it I felt like it's kind of like addictive in a way, like seeing these notifications where you're getting sales and like mm-hmm. something's going well. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I could do this in another town. I could do this all around the country. Yeah. And there's no reason I can't if I just put my mind to it. And it doesn't have to be a, a huge campaign. You just like book a gig in a venue and it's, it's like fairly self-explanatory stuff. You just target on social media uh, people who live there who are interested in music, uh, 
local media like newspaper or um radio stations and it's achievable like you can yeah you can do it and then you can you know uh feel accomplished after doing it's empowering too though you know you like exactly you, you can do it yourself and, and you're bypass control any, you know gatekeeper and once you just yeah once you cut out a middleman and, and try it yourself and it goes well then you gain confidence from that and uh you feel good about your music well, yeah it makes you feel good about yourself as well and probably shouldn't be that intrinsically well uh, intertwined with each other your feeling of self that's another conversation with your feeling of being a good successful artist but that's that's just the reality of it so just like, yeah it, it'll it all feeds into each other you know so that's where i am at the moment and um just uh i feel like i can, can grow from where i am and just uh doing gigs i can manage and then maybe make them bigger next time yeah. but only doing stuff that feels good you know that's a great point yeah so, Dr. Dr. Dre actually taught me that. Not personally, but I was watching that show, <laughs> documentary. What is it called? The Defiant Ones. The Defiant Ones. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy Iovine. Jimmy Iovine and him, yeah. And uh, they just seem like um, real solid, determined, focused characters. And uh, just something that struck me that he was saying. It's like from early on in life, if something didn't make him feel good, he just stopped doing it, no matter what it was, whether it was paying or not. He just did stuff that made him feel good, like uh, musically, production. Yeah, uh, well, that, that's not always the easiest uh, decision. No, it's to not, make. especially if it's not commercial. But like, there's a lot to be said for it. I mean, if you if you have conviction, and uh, you're being true to, true to your, I don't know, your your kind of belief system. It's probably a bit of too dramatic a way of putting it. But just being true to yourself and your ideals, I think people can realise uh, and recognise that authenticity. And that's what they really that's want. People want something to. real to buy into. like, And they don't want a version of your art itself. They just want, like, I, I believe they just want you to present the work the way you want it. Yeah. You know? Um, that kind of goes back to the gigs we were talking about and how people pick their set for live games yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think deep down that's what everybody wants the artist to be you know it's to be authentic yeah. i think yeah i think as an artist you want to be authentic as well yourself mm. and you kind of know when when what you're doing is not really you yeah you know? i think yeah uh, we've all been there at gigs where you're playing and it's like what am i doing here <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, uh, too happens. many times yeah so just before we finish up, I've been asking everybody and I'm getting a really good list here together now. So it's really good. Um, do you have any book recommendations or any anything that's particularly inspired you? Um, I know you mentioned David Byrne and artists, books, website, whatever you can think of, podcasts. I, uh, and it might be a man you'd, you'd want for your uh, podcast. I listened to two songs on my way over here. Myself and my brother-in-law have a, uh, a tradition where we make each other a compilation CD for our birthdays. Oh, great! Every year we've been doing this about fifteen years, and we're still rocking the compilation CDs. Yeah, yeah. But there's less places to play them now, so I just actually listen to it in my car. And on my way over here, the first two tracks on this year's CD for me, uh, "A Lazarus Soul," um, and he used to. There's some kind of we're in Salvage now. There's some kind of Leaksit connection. His his old band used to be out Leaksit Boys, Future Kings of Spain. Okay, I think yeah. he worked here as well. Uh, it's really good stuff. Joe Chester produces it, but they're two beautiful songs. The Long Balconies and uh, The Black and Amber are the two songs that I listened to on the way over here. Cool. And I found them inspiring yeah. because they're very real. Uh, the artist being very true to himself. It's not a million miles away from Damien Dempsey, who I also love. And in that same vein, Lancome's new album, I think is brilliant. They used to be lynched. I'm a huge fan of them. Uh, I think there's there's a great uh, folk scene going on in Ireland at the moment. Ye Vagabonds, another band who I really like. Yeah. Um, and all that stuff is a little bit different to how I present my music, but I'm I I actually feel very uh, inspired by people being fearless with the songs and um, choice of content that they choose to pursue and gaining success from it as well. You know. Yeah. 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 So musically. 
in Ireland, um, that's what I really like at the moment. Um, books. I'm reading. I like Bukowski, Charles Bukowski. Yeah, cool. I've got a collection of his short stories, and just say if I'm writing a song late at night, my brain is wired. I can't go to sleep after it. Like it could be four in the morning, so I just read one of his short stories and yeah. puts my brain on a different track. Then I can start relaxing again. So that's what I'm reading at the moment. Um. So yeah, there that'd be what's uh. That's on your reading list. Yeah, pressing my buttons at the moment, yeah. Good stuff. Well, Ross Breen, thanks very much for coming. Thanks for having me, Barry. It was a nice nice little setup you had there. You are listening to From the Maker to the Maid podcast.